What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Jan Lieberman. Jan is a co-founder of the crypto investment firm, Delphi Digital. Jan's story is incredible. Him and his co-founders started Delphi Digital as a crypto research firm and have grown it into one of the most respected crypto investment funds out there. We discuss Jan's personal journey into crypto, the founding and expansion of Delphi Digital, his investment strategies, and what the next hot market within crypto will be. Hearing Jan's story is just absolutely inspiring. It proves that when you combine unwavering conviction with immense amounts of hard work, you can achieve anything in our growing ecosystem. Please enjoy my conversation with Jan Lieberman. Jan, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. No, I really appreciate you having me on. So uh, before crypto, I was in traditional finance. Uh, I worked in equity research uh, covering TMT at Bloomberg. And then uh, shortly after that, moved over to, to DB to do a little bit of time in, in leverage finance. So, you know, pretty traditional finance background and um, got into crypto so you know, heard about it for a while but unfortunately didn't pull the trigger um which i'm sure you know this is the case for for most people and eventually got in in uh may 2017 was the first time uh bought some crypto was um ethereum where uh so it was basically myself mj and neil and um it, it MJ's friend basically. He was talking to his friend, and, and he's like, you, "You, Matt, can you believe somebody uh, put 5K into this Ethereum thing?" And, and then, uh, like, he went home that day, looked into it, and then called us up, and basically, he's like, "We need to, we need to start looking into this." And so, we bought a little bit at at 90 bucks, and and so we're, you know, at that point, started to really try and dive in and understand what was going on. And then, shortly after, it starts, you know, really ripping. And before you know it, you're just like emptying out your entire. Um, your 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 traditional your equity portfolio and, and and then not too long after that my entire retirement portfolio is like ah this is way more interesting and so we started really piling in I'd say summer of, of uh, 2017 and at the time we were still working in our traditional job but at this point it was a lot of our our time and our focus during the day was just looking into crypto we researching what's going on and and so trying to just absorb everything and and you know at the time tokens were basically just a kind of a vehicle for raising capital. And, and so we were trying to figure out, you know, trends, what made sense, what, what wasn't, because no one really had any idea what was going on. And, and you just had kind of a lot of really interesting ideas, but also really far-fetched ideas. And, and so um, I think, you know, every every couple of months you, you think back to what you knew about crypto at the time and you realize you didn't really understand much. And, and I think it's just a kind of a, a great precursor for the idea that you're just constantly learning in the space, which is, which is really exciting. And so um, we <clears throat> were investing a bunch in 2017 and trying to really understand what was going on still at our TradFi jobs. Obviously, everyone did really well at the end of 2017, didn't really sell much, um, <laughs> wrote it, everything pretty much back down <laughs> throughout 2018 and, and ended up being, you know, going from up a lot to up very little. And, um, at that time, we were thinking about, you know, how do we want to get into the space professionally? And it was something we were thinking about even in, in 2017. And we weren't really sure what we wanted to do and didn't necessarily limit, want to limit ourselves to a certain project or anything like that. So the idea was, OK, what what makes sense for us to do and, and where can we leverage our existing skill set in the best way possible? And our, our focus was, you know, research and, and kind of uh, finance specifically. So we thought, let's 
start a research shop and 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 try and really bridge the gap between institutional and and institutional investors and and the crypto space because we realized you know, if if the space were to really get big you'd need some level of institutional buy-in and you were seeing other primitives being built out to accommodate for that with you know, uh, custody and everything else and so we thought research was a, a necessary portion to kind of really convey the investment thesis and and how these things start to accrue value and so in uh in august of 2018 um so at the time it was myself mj uh and neil and kevin and so we quit our, our tradify jobs and we all you know put aside some capital just to for runway because we didn't really we didn't do any outside investors so we kind of just bootstrap and so um at the time we were trying to figure out what the research product would look like and and because the space was moving so quickly it, it was really difficult so we were basically going back and forth. And, and so the idea was we need to figure out what investors would want right now and, and, and how to structure the product. And so it's a bit difficult to um, scale research without really having outside capital because, you know, subscription business takes a while to really get to scale. And so we also got into the, onto the consulting side, which would basically just, you know, we have to do the research during the day and then the consulting stuff at night. And the idea was you'd get these slightly larger ticket items that can kind of fund the business for as long as you need to until uh, hopefully research gets off the ground. And um, so our first kind of um, uh, consulting engagement was looking into the crypto gaming space. So initially, what we were basically consulting as was an outsourced due diligence team for for some funds in the space. And they would say, you know, look into a certain sector and and and, and that's what we would do. And and that made sense based on, you know, what we were doing previously. And so gaming was kind of what we started looking into at the end of 2018. Uh, and, and, you know, there were a lot of games that existed, but the the, the, the clear standout at the time was Axie. And, and that's kind of how we got involved with them in, in 2018. And it's funny, like, you know, we looked at, I think, 15 or so games and, and the only one that still exists is Axie. And, and so we, we played all of them, looked into the numbers and everything else. And, and so that, that's kind of how we got involved with them. But at the same time, crypto at the time, there wasn't really a lot of new capital flowing in. So our goal, like a lot of the funds in the space were, were really trading focused where there wasn't really new capital. And so there wasn't a lot of uh, fundamental based investing that was really happening either because there weren't really any fundamentals. And so um, our focus was we need to you know, figure out how these tokens can accrue value and why. And so, you know, I think the space kind of went from 2017 from all right, tokens are, are a really useful way to um, to raise capital and, and not have any kind of uh, not dealing with any red tape or, or having to offer investor protection that that equity kind of offers. And so that that's how the space was then. And then over time in, in 2018, 2019, you started to kind of see this gradual shift to, OK, how do these tokens actually accrue value? And so we started looking into that. And then I think that's really how we got into DeFi pretty early, where DeFi had a had a pretty natural product market fit in, in terms of you know enabling speculation and, and just those primitives of, of borrowing, lending, and and kind of everything else that was built on top. But there were more tangible value accrual models where you know something would generate fees and this would somehow get passed on to token holders. And so that's how we really got into the, the DeFi space a bit early on. But it was also kind of how we started to um, think about tokens and, and what makes sense just based on the fact that, you know, our, our research was focused on fundamentals. And so we would kind of look at various tokens that had 
potentially similar structures, but figure out what works, what doesn't, why. And that led to us on the consulting side, transitioning from really being an outsourced due diligence team to more so working with projects and tokens themselves. And so we would uh, work on token design and, um, and, and, and just we work with projects from a really early stage where you know they don't really have much besides an idea to existing projects that already had a token and potentially needed some modifications or you know we'd participate in governance and and really help on that front and so that's where you saw the synergy between um, the consulting and the uh, and the and the research side where with what we learned through research we can kind of deploy through consulting and and as we worked on more projects and were exposed to kind of different models, we were able to iterate pretty quickly and, and just continue to try and, and learn and, and figure out how to best incorporate these tokens. And so then you gradually saw the transition over time from the token. Now it's okay, this thing has to be somehow valuable to, all right, actually a token enables you to do things that you weren't previously able to do. And, and basically all else held equal, a, one project launching without a token is actually disadvantaged relative to one launching with a token because now this token is an asset that you can use to incentivize behavior and and kind of uh, align interests and, and a really useful kind of uh, coordination mechanism for a lot of the different individuals interacting with the protocol because you have to kind of assume everyone acts in their own best interest and how can you put a token in between all of these users and allow everyone to act in their own best interest but have this still be um, you know, uh, net value accretive to the protocol and, and all the users involved. And so that's kind of how we started thinking about the token design going forward and, and, and where and the role that the token plays. I feel like I'm, I'm going on a bit of a rant. So no, I'll, no, I'll I, I mean, no, that, that was that was amazing. Okay, so I, I've, I just have a ton of questions. Okay, so um, yeah, first of all, thank you. That, that was that was a super great overview. And I, I loved how you went chronologically so I could follow along about the, the evolution of, of you guys and, and the firm. But so so going going way back to when you first got started in crypto, what what was the initial, like for, for me, I, I looked at it like, oh, I can make a ton of money. And then af after that, I got more excited about the actual underlying technology. What was your initial like, okay, cool. This is something I wanna get involved with. Like, what was that, what was that reason? No, that's, that's uh, I'd say summer and fall 2017 was certainly like, yes, like there is an opportunity to make a ton of money, but in order to, to make a ton of money, you, you have to learn a bunch about the space. And the more we learned, the more we started realizing, you know, the, the actual um, utility and, and, and fundamental value and, and, and kind of new primitives that are enabled through the space, through tokens and, and um, kind of everything that can happen on top. And so it, it was certainly, um, you know, profitability driven at first, but the more we got into it, in the search for profit, the more we realize that this is a really interesting space, and and so one that we want to be a part of in the, in the long run, and, and like that, I think that was kind of the decision making process. That's awesome. Okay, so so you you, you and your friends, and, and I assume that you knew MJ, Anil, and Kevin before. Is that right? Like before yeah, starting yeah, Delphi, we, we've worked together since 2014 and have been oh, roommates no for for many many years. Um, so it, it made it really easy. It's, it's always a funny situation where it's like, don't go into business. Like, you know, you hear the phrase, like, don't go into business with your friends. But at the same time, we had we met through work and then had lived together for a while. So we knew how we kind of operated at work. And we're obviously very close otherwise. So um, it was a situation where we were totally fine with it. And I think it was advantageous in the sense that because we were so close to each other, you know, early on, it was just a lot of sleepless nights and, and, and kind of 
with with no income and and which you know can can put people on edge to some extent and um i think for us it was helpful because if there were disagreements they could we, we wouldn't really any uh we wouldn't kind of withhold back opinions or or you know i think this should happen like this and then everything would be a discussion nothing was ever kind of bottled up which i think was a huge advantage where we can just be super upfront and and it was a situation where we you know we would basically because uh so Anil, MJ, and I lived together, and then uh, Kevin lived uh, separately, but that was afterwards. And so even before that, we all lived together back in like 2015. Um, but it, it helped where, you know, during the day, we would wake up, go to the office. We had like a, a really nice, not really nice, uh, a, a, a tiny little four-person uh, we work with no windows. Um, and, and so, you know, during the day, we would go there, and then at night, we would go home and then kind of scheme and think about like how we want to evolve the business in the long run. And so it... it created, I think it gave us a big advantage where you do your really productive grinding, you know, from eight to 10 and then 10 PM, you'd go home and then you'd start to think about, you know, you'd zoom out a bit and think about like how we want to grow this long term and, and do a bit more scheming on that front. And I think that element and just being able to do that for two years basically was a huge advantage for us and, and kind of helped us grow. That is, that is so cool, especially like yeah, you're right. They, they do say like, never go into business with your friends, but I've known my investment partner, Dan. Uh, I've known him since I was six. So, so and like, and we, we work amazing to get it together. So um, it, it's really, it's really, uh, it really does help a lot that you can, you know, this person, you trust this person and you kind of, um, yeah, can, can, can work uh, like you can help. My, my weaknesses are his strengths and, and vice versa. So that it, it does really, really help. So, okay. So you guys were all, all together in, in the financial industry in New York and then, you guys got all pretty deeply involved in crypto. Were you guys starting to think, okay, um, you know, we should we should start uh, Delphi Digital, uh, which is, you know, at, at the time it was, we guys were like, okay, we're going to start this just pure research firm so we can make better investments ourselves. Or what was what was the kind of thought process behind starting Delphi Digital? Yeah, so the idea was, you know, based on our skill set, because we've never managed any capital before. So we thought going out and trying to do that wouldn't be the right approach where, you know, we were in no position to confidently say we can manage outside capital and also starting up would require a lot of outside capital, just, you know, setting up the entity and, and kind of all of that. And, and we thought that that would, that would take some time and, and wasn't necessarily our core competency. And, and so we thought research would kind of be the best way to, because I think with research, you're having to write out at the time, you know, we'd write like these 20, 30 page reports just because I think quality projects were a bit few and far or few and far between at the time. And so you can spend a bit more time really deep diving into a handful of projects that you think make a lot of sense. And, 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 and so writing, you know, 20, 30 pages about something is, is the best way to really understand the topic. Like you don't understand the topic really well until you have to write about it is, is something that I've noticed both, you know, just thinking about it or looking at it in situations where I haven't had to write about it and the ones where I have, because you need to like formulate your thoughts and you're thinking through all the gaps. And so our goal was if we can, you know, start with research and really understand the space, we can um, grow that business and then eventually move into um, managing capital and, and kind of thinking about it that way. And so for us, it was this really made the most sense in, in terms of our, our backgrounds and, and what where we think we can excel. Um, and, and the consulting arm was just a, a kind of a natural evolution where we still needed to bring in capital because like while we were doing the research side, we didn't actually launch the subscription model until uh, February, March. And, and 
so Tom joined over in, in, in February of 2019. And, and um, uh, so we, we started growing the team a little bit, but it was, we were still really small and, and didn't really have um, any capital. So I think our, our goal, the way we kind of started to build the brand was, you know, we, we were not going to, we don't have any money to spend on advertising. And, and we just thought that that also wouldn't really be the best use of capital. And so we published you know, two large reports for free or, or publicly, basically it was like a Bitcoin report where we, we um, tried to, you know, uh, we ended up being successfully calling uh, for the, the bottom of, of Bitcoin based on, on UTXO analysis. And then we did a, a public ETH report as well uh, that, that got around. And so we figured that's how we'd start building the brand and, and kind of showcase the, the caliber of research. And then after that, we would look, we would start launching a subscription product. And so in order to kind of fund the time it takes to do all of that, we had to uh, do the consulting on the side, which ended up being you know, a really great play because it got us involved with some um, great projects early on. Yeah, that report, that Bitcoin report, I still remember that. I, I, I'm still. It's amazing that you guys called that. It was, it was, it was so crazy and cool that you guys did it, and and that must have just caused. That must have really been like a huge uh, boost to everything that you guys did. So absolutely, you know, hats off to you guys for that. That was that was insane. So okay, so you guys are all researching, writing these amazing reports, and really diving deep. And so the intention was eventually you guys were going to start uh, taking on capital. But from my understanding, um, you guys bootstrapped like the entire firm. Like there was no, you guys didn't go out and raise. It was just personal capital. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, through 2019. So the, 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 the big, the, the scary part was in, in November of 2018 when like Bitcoin crashed from six to three and we're already running through our, um, our, our stash. Like, Shit, this, this is tough. We're actually in, um, in March of 2019, we are, so our lease was up uh, at the end of 2019 or at the, at the end of March, 2019. And basically we were going to be uh, like a couple of us were going to have to move home with our parents. So I was going to like find a couch to live on basically. Cause I was like, I, I still need to be in New York to some extent, but I think that would have been a really difficult um, headwind for Delphi had we gone through with it. But what, what happened was we, we uh, landed a, a pretty big consulting job, which, effectively allowed us to stay in New York. And so um, once we kind of got enough to that point, we, we weren't really going out or anything like that. We, you know, it, the only stuff I would ever leave the apartment for was, was mandatory things, which are basically like weddings, and bachelor parties, everything else we would just kind of stay at home for. And so we were able to basically kind of turtle up and not um, spend a lot of cash. And so like through 2019, we, we, we started, we started uh, bringing on employees. And, and so we had uh, Paul, who's our, our first hire, who interned for free with us for uh, three or four months, just because, you know, we're like, we're not paying ourselves. We don't have any money to pay you. And then eventually we brought him on uh, full time and started, you know, uh, paying us uh, the salary there and, and basically uh, realizing that we need to grow the team. And over time, as we kind of got to like a subsistence level, the consulting side, we we switched from you know needing that capital to to really fund operations. We would shift it to just taking in enough cash to um, survive, but also trying to take payment and tokens. And that's where we kind of uh, shifted the consulting from you know we need to consult with kind of anyone to to be a bit more selective because we we want to basically consult for equity to some extent, and so we'd be rewarded with equity for our time and, and in the sense of, um, you know, part of the payments in cash, part of the payments in tokens. And, and it was also like a, a great way to align ourselves long-term with the projects we worked with and, 
and and you know have long-term locks on those tokens but we wanted to be actively involved and and kind of work with projects we believed in so as as that kind of happened uh we were we were able to to bring on another hire and so we we uh expanded we were at seven at the beginning of um 2020 and then right now we're actually uh we just broke 50 uh across the divisions and so what what ended up what the progression was from there was so you know crypto started really taking off and and our subscriptions um started growing a lot and, and to the point where you know we can gradually start onboarding more and more guys and then we we um partnered with jose and luke in um mid 2019 and and jose came on to kind of lead the um consulting division and what ended up happening is that gradually evolved into labs so the consulting side at first was us designing uh tokens and and working with these projects and but the the kind of engagement would end after we would hand off like a model and say this is how we would design it um you know this is how it, it can play out but we don't necessarily have the technical skills to um to to go any further so uh luke was our, our kind of cto and the, and the two of them started spearheading the consulting but gradually evolving that into a labs arm and, and that basically entails bringing on so we brought on a, a lot more uh, a couple more analysts but also brought on a bunch of developers and so now we're able to design the the token econ but also then um do the developing and the coding up of the, the smart contracts and, and kind of cr providing a more end-to-end -end solution and so that helped the consulting kind of grow as well and you know we're able to bring in kind of more recurring revenue through that and, and continue to expand the business and we thought the next natural evolution was um running some capital and so this is still in in we were, we were thinking about like you know trying to launch in mid to late 2019 and so we were looking around for potential investors we, we were you know discussing um with a, a seed investor and we, we spent a lot of time kind of doing that and then it ended up falling through and then in um in mid 2020 or in in beginning of q2 2020 is when we're like all right maybe we should just kind of seed it ourselves and we you know we had a, a, basically all internally funded it was like or 90 percent internally funded um we started with uh, a million bucks and so it was you know everyone kind of chipped in for this and that's what the venture arm grew and, and our thought process was um our biggest value add is finding projects early on and, and, and really figuring out what makes sense and what can accrue value and, and really trying to secure that um, massive, like asymmetric upside return by getting in as early as possible. And, and, and I think it, as well, because of our uh, token design skills that it was a lot more useful for the projects themselves to have us get involved early because we can, you know, help on that front. And so for us, we realized, you know, we can try to launch this without necessarily needing a lot of capital just based on where we want to invest stage-wise. And also the market was a lot smaller. And so um, we were we were kind of able to survive with just raising off that million and then kind of reinvesting from there. And um, so the, the goal was we were able to kind of um, get involved with these projects really because they saw the value add of, of us getting involved in, on the token front and and really on the kind of the, the strategy. And thankfully, you know, that initial start was basically enough for us to kind of launch ventures and and get to the point where, where where it is now. Okay, that that is just again insane and amazing. It, it it's so incredible. Okay, so so go, going back quickly, like who who was actually writing the research in the early days, and also like on the consulting side, were you guys only doing token economics, or were you guys doing like whatever the the product would ask for? 
So on the research side, early on was like everyone wore many hats and you just, there was just, you know, there's only a handful of us and there just wasn't enough time to, or not enough manpower to, 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 to like leave the research to one person and kind of have everyone, someone else specialize in something else. So it was actually pretty interesting. We all started doing the research and then gradually we started to kind of realize where the individual skill sets were in terms of, you know, like really trying to focus down on, on what everyone does best. So it, it, you know, we we're all continuing to write research, but to some extent people were kind of focusing on some other elements based on, you know, where they excelled. And um, so for, for the most part, all of us were writing research and, and to some extent we, we still all do, but it's certainly um, dialed back where I think, um, I think like in, in, late 2019 early 2020 um like anil started to shift more to like the the coo role where he, he's just really good at that and and he would still be involved in the research side but we would kind of slowly take away from his time on research so he could focus on on growing the business as we started to upsize and there were just like other kind of elements that needed to come into play and and then even within research we would have individual kind of focuses where, where kevin is more macro and and um and and like he would kind of, because he was in equity strategies before, so he did a really good job of, of, of macro analysis and also tying in Bitcoin with, with other macro assets and, and those types of trends. Whereas MJ and I would typically go down the rabbit hole more often and, and um, I would do a bit more of the quantitative side and, and, and MJ would do a lot, a lot of the qualitative and, and uh, tech stack analysis where he, you know, he'll just go down a rabbit hole and, and really um, be able to dissect the, the kind of the technical strengths and weaknesses pretty quickly. And so that, that pairing um, kind of made sense for all these long form reports. And then over time, as we were able to kind of expand the team, we were able to delegate a bit more. And, and I like all of us would do consulting as well, where uh, it would just be based on, you know, this is the engagement. All right, who's best suited to do this? And then you start to kind of reshuffle work around to, to make deadlines and, and ends meet. Um, but I'd say for the most part, we were doing a lot of, um, Token Econ, we had some um, landscape analysis for projects where it's like, you know, assess the competitive landscape and what everyone's doing. And, and so we did that to some extent. And the good thing is there was a, there's a lot of overlap between all of these um, entities in, in terms of, you know, the IP and the work done. And, and so we would often, you know, what we learned doing this, we would we would repackage and publish in, in, in research to, in, in some form or another. And, and so we would kind of look to re recycle all that IP and, and think through, you know, how do we best package this into something that's actionable for, for clients? And then over time, as the space really evolved, we would have to kind of tweak the package. So we've, you know, revamped what the subscription model looks like um, multiple times based on, you know, where the space is going and, and what makes sense. We're now, we're not doing as, as long form, um, but, but still looking to produce, you know, actionable content, but not necessarily to the same extent, just because, you know, there, there's a lot more, um, projects nowadays that are really interesting and worth covering. And, and, and so it just didn't make as much sense to go, you know, a 30 page report on one project where, which we would do, you know, with like Rune and synthetics at the time, because there weren't that many around, but nowadays we, we've kind of trimmed that and packaged it. And we've also just been able to kind of expand the research team quite a bit and, and create some level of, of hierarchy within it so that you don't necessarily have choke points where a lot of people are answering to one person and, and, and it comes, becomes like a productivity choke point. But it, it's helped yeah, the business grow and, and kind of streamline efficiency a bunch.
Okay. Yeah. That, that, again, that is just that is just incredible. Okay. So so when you're when you're designing these these token models, how how do you guys know? Like especially like the first one, how do you guys know that okay this model should accrue more value for X Y Z reasons? Like because because if you guys have never done it before, how how are you guys able to um, assume that that model was correct? Yeah. No. I mean, and and it's 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 a learning process where uh, there's definitely thinking back to some of the previous designs there would be you know some potential tweaks we'd make now but a lot of it was just based on um us looking at what exists in the space currently um what we would do to change it and then we would kind of we would try and model out what the based on the design that exists or the design that we want to incorporate if we you know play it out with different variables how does this play out and 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 what really happens and so we would often just basically try and attack all of the models that we design because that's realistically the biggest weakness is you know you're going to have people who look to exploit it and exploit not in, in the sense that they're trying to break it but like how do i extract the most value for myself and so we would basically put that hat on and think okay if i'm a user that's looking to you know extract value that's not necessarily um useful to the protocol how would you tweak it so that if they were to do that or, or try and attempt that, it actually provides some value to to everyone else? And so it was basically kind of design and attack, design and attack, and and, and kind of keep iterating on these models and 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 think through what works and what doesn't. And so, you know, at first we we didn't know whether or not this was the best thing. We thought, you know, based on the the research that we've done and and kind of what exists, that this made the most sense. And, and so it, it was certainly a learning process for us. And, and um, that, that, yeah, there's no guarantee in, in that respect, but it was basically just trying to figure out all, all kind of uh, attack vectors and then also think about what this means in the long run and, and, and how this helps the protocol. And so, um, you know, that, that's kind of the thought process with like the Axie token, which like they were, were super happy that they kind of reached out to us after engaging with them. Um, in 2018. And so, you know, we, we kind of cooperated with them and, and worked together to, to, to design that element. And so I think um, it, it's, yeah, it's a lot of iterative learning and, and you just the space moves so quickly. And, and I think what, what happens, is, what, what's useful is that it's not academic in the sense that you're not, you know, thinking about these um, problems and, and the way they play out theoretically, like you can actually see them all play out live and it happens very quickly. So I think, um, poor ideas are, are pretty, you know, are exposed pretty quickly and, and good ones are also validated pretty quickly. So, all right. So, so did your background in, in finance, did it help you immensely when you guys were building out these, uh, you know, research reports, the, the kind of token economic models, or how do you guys even know how to start with that process? Yeah, no, I, I think it was definitely helpful. Uh, I, I mean, at first everyone's, was you know thinking through different kind of ways to value these tokens and and um that was always interesting so you know it started with uh like quantity of uh, of money theory and uh, mvpq and everyone started kind of going down that route and then it was it was interesting to see because everyone in the space was trying to kind of figure out a consensus way to value some of this and and to some extent i mean not to some extent it, it's it's nearly impossible for a lot of these kind of network-based ones in the sense that there's no definitive way it's, it's it's a lot of kind of um variation and so i think the the finance background certainly helped there in terms of really contributing to the conversation and and really uh thinking through the stuff afterwards you know with DeFi, the initial models were were pretty dcf based and and it made sense for certain projects like 
uh, maker and, and some others were that that's kind of how we started to think about it. But um, I, I think once we started getting further down the, the token route and the token design route, uh, just game theory and, and kind of um, there's a lot of uh, kind of gamifying incentives. And I think, you know, a, a couple of us were have spent a lot of time playing video games. I think, to be honest, that helped to some extent. And also just um, you know, playing poker and, and some other games and, and just trying to think about like the game theory element was, was also super useful on the design front. So I think that the finance side was helpful early on to think about how to value these and, and, and kind of speak to what makes sense, particularly with DeFi. And then over time, some of the other elements came into play. But I, I definitely do think it helped. And, and to some extent, early on, just getting in the room with um, institutions, you know, we, we were able to get some kind of immediate credibility uh, just in terms of, you know, they understand our background. And so what we're, we can kind of speak the language that they're used to and, and convey those, those narratives in a way that they're accustomed to with the type of research they were reading normally. And so that, I think that was certainly um, helpful. And then after that, it was really just kind of required going down rabbit holes and really understanding the space because the space, you know, evolved really quickly and, and, and it wasn't long before just uh, like a finance background was, was pretty much obsolete. And you really need to understand how these models have progressed over time and why. And so you, you kind of started to see, you know, in the early days, synthetics was was the first that, that really started with any kind of uh, yield farming or, or liquidity incentives when they had, you know, their ETHS ETH pool. And then also um, just the, the the kind of model they designed with, um, you know, you stake and you receive a certain yield you lock, that's locked for a year and, and kind of those types of incentives, which I think, you know, they were pioneers um, in, in that respect. And so, you know, understanding what they did, where we think certain changes could have been made or, or, or anything along those lines. It was, that's really what like the, the, the next step to getting, um, I guess, good at the token design front was just looking at every existing project. And, and naturally we had to do that through the research side. And, and so um, indirectly we would kind of incorporate that into consulting just based on, on what we learned. And, and I think there's like a lot of kind of reflexivity across all of that where designing new token models helped us think through, you know, strengths and weaknesses of future projects that we looked into. And, and so it kind of gave us some strong conviction into some early plays just by understanding you know, how the token is designed and, and what we think happens to it as, as uh, adoption takes place. And so um, I think that the finance backgrounds were definitely useful at first. And then after that, it was um, more supplementary and you really needed to kind of just get your hands dirty and, and dig through all of these. That's again, just incredible. Okay. Okay. So, um, so you guys had research, you had consulting, you had a lot of experience in, in designing and researching these, these awesome projects. And then you, you guys were starting to get paid in tokens, which was a huge galaxy brain move. And then you're like, okay, let's, let's start investing. You guys put together a million bucks and started to invest. Was that the start of Delphi ventures or did Delphi ventures come after that? No, no, that, that was the start of Delphi ventures where, um, wait, so, so you guys started with a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and then we have that like is, that. We, that is insane. All, that is insane. Yeah. That's what Delphi Ventures was seeded with. And that's what we've never really added to it. We just kind of, you know, re recycled some capital as, as some positions were sold off a little bit. We were able to kind of continue reinvesting. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that was the kind of the only money that went into to Delphi Ventures. And, and then over time we were able to grow that and, 
you know, partially it's just getting into early, um, getting in early on, on some successful projects and then kind of reinvesting that to some extent. But um, yeah, that, that was the, the start. And um, we, we figured it was enough to, to get us off the ground and, and, you know, get into some of these early projects. You know, I think early on, we would have loved to have been able to size into some deals larger than we could have just because we, you know, we didn't have that much capital to work with. But over time that evolved and and then um, <clears throat> then after that, like what we started to realize was, especially more recently, because the, the investments um, state like the um, investment landscape has grown so much and, and these deals are just getting much bigger. While we continue to, to try and look for early stage investments, there are some later stage ones that we also like to kind of participate in. And, and from there, we um, basically launch kind of our institutional plus model where we allow subscribers that are kind of another tier up to co-invest alongside us into deals that we DD and bring to them. And that's kind of the situation how we're able to sometimes upsize into certain deals and, and bring in outside capital without necessarily needing to start a new fund or relaunch everything. And so we kind of do that on an SPV by SPV basis. And, and you know, th they're happy because they basically get our due diligence or our deal flow for deals that we think make sense for them. And then on our side, we were able to kind of collect carry and, and basically add uh, create like a, a system where ad hoc LPs can come in on a deal by deal basis and, and each investment is siloed into a separate SPV. But you know, th that's only something we started a bit more recently as the space has grown, but for the most part, um, it's, it's been, you know, just, uh, kind of growing that initial million. Oh my God. You, you guys are just, you guys are living in the future. I swear it's, it's insane. <laughs> all right. All right. So, um, and you absolutely don't have to answer this. This is a really, you know, straightforward, like just in your face question. What is your AUM today? You don't have to answer it. Um, it's, uh, it's in, in the, like, I'd say, you know, mid to low nine figures. Amazing. That, that is so amazing. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, Delphi podcast, we actually didn't really touch upon this too much. I want to learn like, what was the thought process behind, Hey, uh, we all can uh, create a podcast and each one, each person can kind of focus on a different sector. Like what, what was that? What was that thought process like? Yeah. So we, um, the, the podcast came to life once we, so Tom at the time, uh, in, in early 2019 was, um, running 51%, which is a research firm he started on his own. And we linked up actually through Pump. And he, um, cause he Tom was, was kind of like uh, working with him to some extent. And we realized, you know, we're trying to build the same thing. So he joined uh, early on with us and he was already running his podcast. And so we kind of evolved that into, into um, Delphi podcast. And, you know, he does a really great job there and, and has uh, built up a strong audience. And so, Initially, it was mostly just him doing it, and you know, as a function of just uh, time was really kind of scarce, and and we we didn't really have the ability to to really all try and dive in. But as we were able to upsize a little bit and kind of reduce individual responsibility to some extent, um, we were able to can kind of dive deeper down that hole. And and we realized we all have slightly different, not interests, but but specific skill sets. Where in certain areas, you know, it might make it makes sense for this person to to bring on a guest, and in this uh, topic, it makes sense for a different person, and so that kind of naturally evolved, and we realized, you know, we can really grow the Delphi podcast, but basically kind of have subcategories where 
individuals that are subject matter experts to some extent in that area would be the uh, interviewer and, and they would you know create a more compelling conversation than necessarily having one person kind of trying to do all of it. And, and so that was the goal with, with kind of building out that audience. And it ends up kind of being part of this large flywheel where, um, we're, you know, we bring on portfolio companies and, and um, we're able to kind of build a brand as well by um, bringing on speakers that we think are really interesting. And, and so it, it, it all kind of goes into this entire flywheel, which, which is Delphi. And, and so, um, you know, podcast is, is, is huge for us and we're, we're excited to keep growing that. Um, but yeah, we, we just saw it as, as a really good way to kind of get our, ha- have like, have ourselves be heard a little bit, but also bring on founders that, that we're excited about and, and want to continue working with and, and help them tell their story. Amazing. I, I think that makes a ton of sense, especially because, because, um, you know, I, I'm looking at the NFT space and there's, because that, that's obviously what I focus on. And there's, you know, virtual land, there's gaming, there's art, there's so many different topics. So having that subject matter expert make, makes a ton of sense. I mean, obviously with, with you guys, you have Pierce on uh, kind of the NFT metaverse side. You guys have, I think, Kevin's on the macro. Uh, I think, what, what is your special, is your specialty DeFi? Yeah, I'd say I'm, I'm more DeFi and, and more on the, on the quantitative side. And, and so I, I've done, you know, a, a few podcasts with um, with portfolio companies that, that, you know, we're really excited about. And. I definitely need to do more of it, um, but yeah, I'm I'm more on the DeFi side, and and totally. also and, and um, Tom, on the gaming what, as well. Very cool. What, what what is what is Tom's specialty? So he, he's a bit of a jack of all trades to some extent. So like he's just a, a really good podcast host, um, and and is able to. I think he has by far the most experience of any of us. So he's just you know great with with kind of uh, asking the right questions and, and helping the conversation flow well. So he he is is he does the most volume in, in terms of podcasts of any of us. So he kind of um, goes down whichever path he prefers. So uh, I'd say, yeah, he's, he's just a really great uh, podcast and, and, and speaking with these founders. Amazing. Okay. So, all right. So I, I want to jump back a little bit to, to like the mm-hmm. hiring spree that you guys went on. You guys started, I think you said, what was it? I have it written down here. So you had seven people at the start of 2020. And then today yeah. in July, 2021, you have 50 people so explain that like that as crazy growth yeah yeah it's uh it's interesting so i mean we we didn't raise any capital so like when we were you know when i like i catch up with my parents and they're like oh how many people do you have now it's like, and we mentioned it's like are you sure you're able to sustain this like yes yes we'll be okay um and so part of it was once we were able to um so because we have no outside investors and, and you know we basically own all these uh, the three entities we're able to um, recycle capital where needed across them and, and also share IP where, um, you know, if we have subject matter experts on the research side, they're always going to be brought in when we're DDing deals of a certain type. And, and obviously everyone's inv- invited to the, to the IC, but specifically in certain areas, uh, it makes sense to involve certain individuals. And so for us, it, it made each hire really valuable because they can always be plugged in, in, in a specific area in the most efficient way. And, so as we kind of grew the subscription revenue, um, we would just reinvest all the capital back into the into the company and and um, and and basically use that to to bring on new users and and new individuals. And I think it's a, it's a unique space where it's it's I think the the value prop we we can offer prospective hires is really compelling in the sense that you know they'll be part of the hive mind that is Delphi and and we're you know constantly talking through 
everything that's going on in the market and and that all becomes really actionable for them in their individual portfolios but at the same time we have like a, a good incentive structure for uh analysts that bring deals to the venture side and then also through labs and and kind of the other things that we're, we're developing and the projects we incubate they get they're able to individually participate in, in the upside of some of these other projects and i think that on its own is a is a, is a really useful way to, to bring on a lot of like the top talent because you know capital at a certain point becomes pretty abundant in the space and, and it's really just like a, a game of, of capturing as much talent as, as you can possibly get because you know as users come into the space that don't really have a lot of experience um i think the learning curve is really massive for them so we started to realize that you know if somebody started coming into the space in 2020 that wasn't really aware you know some people were able to catch on pretty quickly but for others, it does take a while because it, it is a lot of the stuff is very esoteric and, and, and not what they're accustomed to in the traditional uh, world. And so we realized, you know, it became a game of really capturing as much talent as we could. And so for that reason, we started to go on a hiring spree and really try and pick up anyone we can. And we definitely had some some pretty unorthodox methods like, uh, you know, we, we hired a few guys initially just sourced based on their degen score or <laughs> where basically we had everyone who's uh wanted to apply like send us a score and then that was basically how you got an interview and you know we we were interviewing a bunch of people and we started really trying to expand the research team and and so we did that pretty rapidly and, and we soon noticed all right now we need to kind of shore up on the operational side and so that's where we've been hiring a, a bit as well where you know if we got too horizontal there would be um gaps in efficiency and what we wanted to do was make sure that um, everyone is being utilized to the best of their ability and, and also operationally, everything runs smoothly. And so now we started you know, uh, adding a lot on the operational side and the compliance side and kind of everything there and making sure that's all shored up. But yeah, our, our goal is uh, as soon as like DeFi summer and everything else started happening, just find the best people in the space that we can and, and, and bring them on board. And, and um, yeah, we, the funny thing is the only person that's, that's uh left and and not fully left has been peers as you know he went to bitcraft but we're we're still you know heavily involved and, and he spends some time with us and, and working on the nft and, and um gaming front but it, it just he's kind of like the bridge between us and, and bitcraft and, and now we're, we're partnering with them where they have uh, a, a um a token gaming fund and um we, we do a lot of co-investing there that we're, we're looking to you know the idea is they're the best in in the space at, at dd and games and, and and our specialty is on the token front and it was a, a really natural synergy and so we're super excited to partner with them but yeah that that's really been the only turnover we've seen and and so it seems like the model is working so far that is that is amazing and, and i i thought that you guys were uh using the gains from the venture fund in order to hire all these new people but it sounds like uh and maybe you, you guys are doing that now but but it sounds like most of it came from the activities from the research and from the consulting and kind of these other, you guys were just taking that capital, going out and hire, hiring more people and that, that flywheel kept kept con continuing. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. Since we haven't really like distributed any gains from the venture fund, we've just reinvested every dollar. Like we haven't made any, any distributions there. So it's, wow. it's all been from consulting and, and um, research revenue. Yeah. That is and our, our, okay. our thought process was, yeah, like if we can kind of keep reinvesting, it just made the most sense rather than distributing. It just... It, the 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 dollar reinvested now would be worth so much more later on. So there's just like no point in, in taking any money out of the out of the system. All right. So so I mean, this might be kind of an obvious question, but how do you guys source deals? Are, are you have everyone kind of always looking and Twitter, Discord, whatever, and talking to people, 
or are people just coming to you so frequently that you guys almost like don't even need to source anymore? Oh uh, no, it's it's. I mean, some deals are brought to us. So we have some funds that we partner with, like or we'll be in, in rounds together, and and it ends up being a situation where you know they add a lot of value, and and so do we in in, in different ways, and it becomes really synergistic to, to kind of get involved in a lot of these deals. So it's a combination of you know, seeing something that we like on, on Twitter or somewhere else and, and reaching out to founders, uh, having some some kind of deals brought to us through partner funds or other projects that were, you know, looking to ha- potentially have us involved uh, in, in, on the token econ side. So right now, excuse me, um, in, in, in the same way that capital is abundant on the, the hiring side, it's also, you know, it's abundant on the investment side. We're a project right now, typically has no issues getting their round filled. And, and particularly as we've seen, you know, a lot of these new funds raised where they have mandates to deploy in, in a certain amount of time. And so there's kind of a lot of capital chasing, not a lot of capacity in terms of primary market deal flow. And so what we've noticed is that nowadays you need to, like just having the capital isn't enough. And it's more about like, what else can you do? Because I can get the money anywhere from the product's perspective. So our, our kind of pitch has always been that, you know, we are are able to really help on the token front where your, your eyes and ears on the ground in terms of understanding what your competition is doing. Um, you know, we have like a monthly product showcase where we um, distribute what all of our portfolio companies are doing to all our subscribers. So for them, it's a great way to, to kind of get other people to understand what they're doing. Well, um, the podcast as well as a, as a really useful vehicle for them to kind of get their message out there. And so um, for these projects, we end up being a, a useful uh, investor in that respect. And so that's that certainly helped us get into deals that I think we otherwise wouldn't have been able to get to. And, and um, the a flywheel that we, we hope to kind of build on going forward. That's yeah, it, it's just insane what you guys have done and built. I, I, I keep I feel like every single time after you're done talking, I'm like, that's insane. But it really is. It really <laughs> is absolutely crazy. All right, so so what what sector within crypto? Because it's now it's so diverse and there's so many different mm-hmm. there's DeFi, there's NFTs, there's certain subsector of NFTs, etc. What sector are you most excited about? I think uh, gaming is is one that you know we're we're really excited about um, seeing what Axie's done and 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 you know I think they're just they're certainly just getting started and they're also kind of going to set the tone for future games and and kind of future uh, gaming business models. Um, and, and, and then to the same effect, uh, yield guild is, is another, um, project that, you know, we're really excited about being able to invest in. And so we think that space is really, um, really ripe for growth. And, and for a few reasons, I think, you know, on one, on one end, it's a bit diversified from DeFi in the sense that it's not as dependent on kind of new capital and, and prices constantly going up, uh, where you kind of see that re- reflexivity to some extent with DeFi, but it's not. Um, as prevalent there, and, and reason being just the the source of demand is it always going to be new capital? It's users that want to come in to either play a game or to come in and and play to earn and, and potentially you know make a better living playing this game than they were than they can doing a variety of other things where they're based. And I think that is a really compelling narrative, um, you know, specifically with, with what we've seen in um, in like the Philippines with, with Axie, but. Uh, over time, I think it's so, you know, with traditional gaming, you have this situation where, you know, why are people playing a game? It's primarily for fun. Here, you're able to bring in a new source of game demand. So you have, you're going to have those who play for fun. You're going to have 
um, those who, who play to earn and are, are able to kind of sell this asset that in, in an in-game economy that can, you know, uh, that they can make a living off of. And then all throughout that, you have speculation littered, which you don't really have in, in traditional games because the kind of the barriers that exist to any form of speculation. And also typically the value, the way to extract value is a lot more difficult and, and a lot more guarded with a lot of these, you know, traditional games. And so um, I think what, what happens is because of this kind of play to earn component, it improves, you're, you're bringing a lot of new users to a game, which then improves the experience for people that are looking to play for fun because there's just more users to play with, which naturally you know, is, 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 is great for the game. And then as you have more users, it enhances kind of the speculative nature because with more users, there's more potential upside for your items that you think could be valuable and, and their value is kind of conditional on, on game expansion. And so if you can really figure out a way to kind of balance all of that and, and, and make that the, the reflexivity um, grow positively, which I think Axie's done really well, it's it's a great way to to have just user growth that blows traditional kind of gaming growth out of the water, and you know, I, I, on top of that, what Yield Guild is going to enable is so they're basically you know their business model is that they are a guild that allows the the play to earn community to to basically remove the barriers for the play to earn community to kind of come into the space, and so that's kind of one facet of it, and and by allowing by lending these assets to users for, the, for them to play and earn a living off of the users obviously collect the majority of the fee and Yield Guild takes 10% and they're able to generate all of these um, assets that they can loan out. But what that also implies is um, future games. So like all, all of these users are sticky to Yield Guild. So Yield Guild has its own community. They're gonna, they'll have hierarchy and there's a lot more things and, and kind of positions that you'll be able to Kind of engage in and they'll have like you know an esports team and, and just a, like a totally different competitive side but what that means for future games is that um you by nature want to partner with yield guild because they're going to be they're gaming experts like you know they're naturally gaming guys and, and they really understand that element but also um now that they have this user base each new game is going to want to partner with them because yield guild can plug in this massive user base into this new game and, and reduce you know, the probability of failure for the new game by getting the initial users in. And, and that kind of gets their flywheel going, which I think you know, getting the initial users is the most difficult thing. And so I think as you, like, they'll basically improve the probability of success for all these future games. And then every future game will wanna partner with them. And at the same time, you know, Guild Guild will invest in the assets of the game that they think make the most sense. And, and that all that value accrues to YGG in the form of either loaning out those really rare assets or just being able to invest early in assets that, like, that they're able to find early on, and, and they're only able to do that because of their ability to understand the gaming space so well. And and so I think it's a, it's a really um, really good model to for for them individually, but also for uh, improving the success of future games that want to launch in crypto space. And so I think you're going to see um, like there's a really strong kind of flywheel effect there, and and. So I think gaming is, is one space that we're really excited about. And, and um, it, it's, I think the, the, kind of, the kind of the TAM there is massive. And, and also gamers naturally, like the overlap between gaming and crypto is pretty massive where like, you know, it's already digitally native, typically tech savvy users. And so it's not really a large jump for them. And so they're much more inclined to kind of get in crypto that way. And, and I think it's a huge, um, vector for new growth into the space in terms of just bringing new users into crypto that 
weren't necessarily, but like they weren't as um, convinced or inclined by the previous theses that users came in through. And so, um, yeah, we, we view gaming as a huge kind of on-ramp for new users and just adoption of crypto in general. I could not agree more. I think that you, you hit upon it really well. You're like gaming obviously is very attractive to a lot of people because it's, it's literally games. It's like fun. But then mm-hmm. with play to earn, there, there's a whole new customer segment that is that are playing these games for the actual earning potential. And then suddenly you add in that that kind of customer segment and it expands the, the TAM immensely. So so I think you're absolutely correct there. What what do you think is like the next quote unquote hot sector? Like, you know, because I feel like we go through DeFi, then we have NFTs. Now like gaming is very hot. Like what, what what is going to be, what is something else in the future that you're looking towards that you're like, okay, this is going to be, you know, the next, the next big thing? I think eventually uh, social tokens will certainly come into play. But what's going to be interesting is, is will social tokens be their own um, product or will they kind of be uh, a characteristic that's added on to existing tokens in the sense that, uh, so even just going back to like yield guild, so, you know, you'll have like a, a reputation based on, you know, the, what games you've played and, and what you've achieved. And, and through that, you achieve a certain status, which can be tied to potentially the amount of tokens you hold or something along those lines. I think like the, the social element will be a really significant one, but I, I, I wonder if it'll be its own category with its own token or more so. Um, something that's just a facet of existing large communities. Because I think it's difficult to bootstrap uh, a social token from scratch where there, I think there needs to be some form of community or, or something that's already been achieved where you can start assigning value to achievements that were you know, done based on something else where you have like a flourishing ecosystem, then you can start adding a social element. Whereas you know, starting a social element from scratch, I think is is just a lot more difficult to, to, to bootstrap and, and get people to be heavily committed to and heavily involved in. So I, I do think the social element will be a big one, but uh, I, I guess it'll really boil down to whether it's its own standalone thing or um, if it's added, uh, it's like a facet added to existing communities that have um, value props that are kind of agnostic to the social element as like their core value prop. Awesome, okay, so, so this is a very broad question. What are your thoughts on the metaverse? Like, is is the metaverse here? Is it coming? Like, is it even a thing? Like, I just love to hear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I it's it definitely. It's I think it's it's here to some extent, and it's just kind of going to keep expanding. Where, um, you know, even zooming out, obviously, all, all the younger generation is much more digitally native than everyone else, and so you're gradually shifting towards a, a, a demographic that's that's really more inclined to be digitally native, and, and, and you know, even thinking through like forms of entertainment, you know, before you see people, uh, I guess, like thinking back to older generations, more of them played sports and, and, and more of them watched sports. And, and part of that was just based on um, what, what was potential for entertainment at the time. And you didn't have this whole like digital world. And so, you're, you know, you're seeing a, a, a bit more shift to just like a digitally native uh, environment where, you know, kids are, are glued to their phone. And so what is valuable to them might not necessarily rely on it being tangible. And so if you kind of use it through that lens, uh, you know, everyone can connect a lot more easily digitally. And, and, and if you think about like the, the levels of the playing field as over time, you know, internet uh, and broadband will be kind of ubiquitous and access to a, a smartphone becomes cheaper and cheaper through, you know, Androids. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a great way to 
and, and a, a kind of a, a playing field, a level of playing field leveler that allows a lot of people to get involved to some extent and, and have like a digital representation of themselves in, in a way that they couldn't previously. So I think that's a, like a kind of a, a narrative and a, a trend that is only going to get stronger over time as it becomes easier to get online and, and, and the value that people see from their online persona gradually becomes more and more um, relative to, to what they want in like the physical world, which, you know, can, can have like slightly darker consequences. But I think, you know, those are, are inevitable to some extent. But generally speaking, you know, everyone, uh, I think it's, it's a trend that's it's inevitable and, and it's just kind of going to improve and get more expansive as there's more to do and, and more to get involved with. And, and um, yeah, I think it, it's certainly here, but over time, will it trend towards like a, uh, a ready player? I think it'll gradually trend towards something like a ready player one, but hopefully a lot less kind of draconian and um, a lot less dark. But I think, you know, certain elements and characteristics of that environment are, are certainly going to kind of, um, they're, they're here to some extent, but it's only going to get, um, you know, more in that direction over time. All right. What is your, your grand five, 10 year vision for everything that you're working on? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. So we, it's pretty funny. We like, we don't set a goal, I'd say more than a year out. And we, 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 I think when we first started, we had some longer term goals, but we started to realize that, you know, things change so quickly and, and, um, business models evolve very quickly and like what makes sense or what made sense before might not make sense now. And I, I think it's, it's pretty unique to the space in terms of how fast that changes. So, you know, we have, I, like we don't really set goals beyond one year uh, just because we realize it's kind of futile. So, you know, we have like growth metrics we want to hit and, and, and kind of areas we want to improve and, and, and kind of expand on, but five to 10 years, I mean, I, I don't imagine doing anything differently. Uh, I think not anything differently, but like, you know, continue to grow Delphi and, and, and hoping to, you know, leverage the research business as a, as a continued way to bring users into the space, uh, expanding on the venture side and, and helping, you know, builders with, with great visions achieve their goals. And then on the consulting side, continue to really, or on the lab side rather, continue to kind of incubate and, and help build out these projects. I think it's just going to be, at, at the moment, it's just more of, of what we're doing and hopefully improving on the process and getting more efficient with it. But I don't, but, you know, in my mind, I don't really have like a, a, a massive change from kind of the direction we're going over the next five years. Ten years is so hard to think about. I can't even imagine, you know, how th how different things are by then. But realistically, we just yeah, I want to keep improving and, and going in the direction we're going until something really suggests we should uh, pivot. Amazing. I absolutely love that. All right. Well, Jan, we, we could keep talking forever but you, you, i think you, you have to get to a meeting pretty soon so let, let's let's jump into the closing questions all right what is your favorite video game oh i've played a lot of video games so like <laughs> oh man that's so tough it, it really depends on the time so like first games that started were age of empires then diablo classic a lot of diablo a lot of starcraft um some city was a big one so i had my my rts space then I, I did wow for a month and said, I can't, absolutely not. This was, it was freshman year of college. I disappeared for a month. I was like, I, I can't do this. And, and so like, I, I, cause I was just playing soccer and stuff. So I was like, I can't do wow. But I, I spent the amount of time I uh, put into Halo has been kind of scary where like Wait, in high Halo, school, it would just Halo be, two, Halo, Halo, what? 
so it's yeah i mean we played halo one with friends then halo two was kind of the game changer where it was the first time you were actually able to play online so that was big halo three for me was in college and then i'd say halo three was probably my favorite game and then starcraft 2 on the rts side was was really was really fun and yeah it's probably going to be halo 3 if i had to pick because even nowadays like i did a lot of clash of clans too which was a massive time suck but it was all of those really contributed to just understanding what people like in gaming and i think it's it's been a really useful skill um but if i had to pick one i'd say halo 3 are you gonna be playing infinite yeah yeah absolutely i'm excited like i mean I definitely don't have as much time to play nowadays, but I will absolutely start sacrificing on the social side to to play some Halo Infinite when that comes out. <laughs> Before you jump off, you got to give me your gamer tag because I am also obsessed with Halo. So we got to we got to jump on. Absolutely, yeah. It's actually it's it's not PG, but it's it, I made this in like sixth grade and it's Donkey Balls. <laughs> so <laughs> no, it's, and it's it's been like banned so many times. So now I have these like ridiculous characters on either side, like the XLs. Cause I've ran out of numbers basically to use. Um, but yeah, no, it, it will definitely play, play one, one seconds out. Yeah. All right. All right. So, all right. So what is your single favorite NFT that you own? Um, it's, it's, it's between. So we, we bought the disclosure NFT, which, which was awesome that we, that, 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 that was in, um, I think it was February. Um, but that, that was one where it's like, you know, with that you can get, um, uh, free access to any disclosure concert with like you and your friends, which we thought was awesome. And, and we're also like just massive fans of, of disclosure. And, and that one was really awesome because we were able to meet um, Guy from disclosure and, and uh, have headed off with him. So that, that's been a really good one. But I think uh, Axies or Axies are the other one that, that we're really bullish on, especially once um, they start adding kind of additional uh, evolutions to the, the mystic Axies and, and so we're really excited to see um, the future with those. And, and I think we, we did a, a lot of DD at the time. And, and so we're really excited to kind of see how those play out and, and to be able to grow those over time and one, you know, potentially uh, fractionalize them or, or kind of look to um, hopefully pioneer some of the, some of the more um, interesting utilizations of those axes. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's between the axes and, and the disclosure NFT. Amazing. All right. What is your most controversial thought relating to NFTs? Um, I'm not a, I, I totally, I think we haven't done as much investing on the pure um, collectible side. Like I, I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of NFTs that have embedded functionality um, just because, uh, you know, I, I think in investing into ones that are purely collectible, I think it's just a lot harder and you have to you know, get ahead of, of trends and, and mimetic trends and, and kind of really uh, figure that out. And it's also a bit more difficult because you have to, like for those, you do need a sticky community. And I think, you know, punks will certainly do well over time. But I think a lot of the things that are less premier, so, you know, your punks and, and everything kind of in that tier one category, I think a lot of the stuff below that tends to die off over time. I, I think it's also difficult to create new, um, I, not to say that there won't be, I think there, there certainly will be um, plenty more just purely collectible NFTs that'll do well. Uh, I think creating them on a standalone basis though is really, really hard because you need a community to some extent for those um, purely 
cosmetic NFTs. And so, you know, the punks have a really strong community and, and it makes sense, you know, they're, they're kind of the, the, the OGs there. But I think some of these newer ones are much more mercenary and I think it becomes a little bit more difficult to nail those. Whereas if you can, on top of a, an existing community, add in cosmetic NFTs or, you know, I think you can, NFTs with unique functionality can really be integrated into the DeFi world where you, know, you can reward certain users with NFTs that are very scarce, but they do have some utility in terms of, you know, enabling better fees and, and kind of value capture there. I think it's really interesting and, and innovative, but I think a lot of the newer NFTs that don't really have a community and are, are purely cosmetic, I, I don't see how those do that well in the long run. All right, if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto or NFT space, what would it be? Uh, I guess some of the some of the launches over time for, for these NFTs need to get a bit fairer. I think that, that would help a lot in terms of creating a community where you, otherwise you kind of end up in this um, concentration situation where it's just a handful of users that really ate into a lot of them. I think figuring out potentially better ways to distribute them so that they're not purely, you know, capital-based distributions, but but like you have to earn the ability to, to kind of get into some extent. So I, I think um, if the, expanding on that area would be um, really useful, and I think create a stronger community for a lot of these, where you know there's more staying power and um, and and the users feel more rewarded for what they're able to get. All right, last question: Where do you see the NFT or crypto ecosystem in three years? Uh, I guess in, in what sense? I mean, I, I you know fully expect it to be considerably larger. I think you're, there, the a lot of the in, kind of investment we've been trying to do on the NFT side has been on the, the picks and shovels front, and and really creating the kind of the, the underlying primitives that make uh, owning an NFT um, more rewarding, both in terms of you know on the financial side because you have more utility in terms of what you can do, but also better ways to display, better ways to um, find like comparing value across NFTs. So I think there's a lot to be had or a lot to be gained in the kind of infrastructure on the NFT side. And so that should help um, really expand that space. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're, we're certainly bullish. I think um, like play to earn is gonna be massive and, and particularly just because you have effectively near endless demand of individuals on the play to earn side. And so it's all about like ensuring that the economies you set up are are functional and 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 can exist in a balanced way and, and can kind of grow over time. So it's I think with well-designed economies, you're going to see uh, in-game economies like rival you know smaller countries in in not that much time just because of the the fact that you know there aren't very little there's basically no barrier to entry for um, a lot of these users and so you're you're going to have people from all over the world who want to come and play and so I think that the the, the gaming economies are going to get really large and you're going to see like valuations for gaming um, projects exceed traditional world economics or traditional world games and you know people will kind of think that seems a little ridiculous but i think part of that is 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 just you you don't want to necessarily like you know looking at actually you see it on, on a price to earnings ratio and you're thinking holy shit this is really cheap and i think part of that is you have different cost structures where you know games are very expensive there's massive costs and and so it's it's very difficult to to have like a highly profitable game and that's why you kind of or not very difficult but it's it's a different business model whereas with these games the, the cost structures are very different a lot more of that cash flow can accrue 
to a token and, and that token can be used to incentivize the game to get larger. And so because of that, and because of like the ability to, um, the, 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 the freedom with which you can invest and then also sell these assets makes it a lot easier for people to pour in a lot more money into these games because it doesn't feel like a sunk cost when you're buying, you know, a cosmetic item on a Fortnite or something like that. These are investments and, and, and just investments in, in, in fun and in investments in the ability to kind of sell it potentially for some future value for, for an increased future value. So I think we'll see like crypto game, crypto games basically start to, to rival and exceed um, traditional world games just, you know, based on kind of the business model and, and various entries, various entry, the ability for this token to be freely trading in accrue value directly versus kind of equity that's a bit more limited and um, the, the, uh, the, the cost structure. Amazing. Jan, this has just been an, an insane conversation. Your story about Delphi and how you guys started and, 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 and just all the detail that you provided and, and the fact that you found it with friends and built it up to, to what it is today is just truly inspiring. It's, it's actually crazy. And I'm looking forward for when you guys write your book. It's going to be, I'm, I'm going to be a big fan, but <laughs> really if people want to find out, yeah, no, of course, if people want to find out more about yourself, find out more about Delphi, where should they go and what should they do? Yeah. Um, you know, we, delphidigital.io is our, is our site. We have a, a bunch of free content there. And, and, um, so definitely encourage you to kind of check that out to, to get an idea of, of what we're putting out. Uh, we put out a lot of free content on, on Twitter, so you can find us on, on Twitter, Delphi digital. And then, uh, on Twitter, I'm, I'm Jan Lieberman. Probably, I'm not as good at tweeting often, but I, so I need to get better at that. But um, yeah, our, our website or Twitter would be the best way. And, and you know, we're, we're, we try to be as responsive as possible. So definitely feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Awesome, Jan. Looking forward to our next conversation. Likewise, likewise. Really appreciate you bringing me on. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.